This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. One of my biggest culture shocks when I moved to Colombia in 2018 was financial. Now that's a pretty broad statement, ridiculously abstract, but like any human being, I experienced this massive systemic shift, one unusual interaction at a time. For instance, in Canada, I was still paying my rent with checks, handwritten checks, up to the month of my move. That stopped in Colombia, and not just because I wouldn't be able to open a bank account right away, or because all my Canadian credit didn't count for much in the Colombian economy. It was also because I had moved from one system with certain implicit operating premises to another with completely different operating premises. In Colombia, over half of the population is part of the informal economy, which means that there is no regulatory oversight for their wages or any other facet of their labor. These informal workers include the street vendors who feed and otherwise serve everyday needs in public spaces and all up and down residential corridors. They're the handymen and small business entrepreneurs who keep so much of their communities moving every day. Similarly, over a third of Colombians are completely unbanked, meaning they have no formal connections to any banking systems at all. And for those who are banked, it's not at all like in Canada, where credit companies are practically sending out cards and offers to everyone, eager to have new customers in debt. Here, it is very difficult to get a line of credit when you have little in the way of formal contact with financial institutions to begin with. In an economy such as this, how does one even begin to ensure the safe transfer of money, even just within the nation? For many, the answer is to live entirely by cash, and hope that you aren't ripped off by your landlord after you've already paid him rent. But that won't work for government services, including paying for energy and water, not without some sort of technical workaround, which is where a whole fleet of special ATMs just for bill payment have arisen in Colombia as an alternative to in-person third-party vendors who will handle the online payment for you. And even if you do have a bank account, you're still going to want to be extra careful to ensure an evidence trail for payment, which is why, instead of checks, Colombians most often send screen caps of a bill they've just finished paying on their mobile banking app, which is itself essential for two-step verification whenever attempting to transfer money from your account. In some ways then, Colombia, like many countries with high levels of unbanked citizens and massive informal economies in general, has been able to leapfrog into technological solutions that Western countries like Canada and the US haven't been anywhere near as pressed to adopt. Certainly, this trend is changing, especially as China drives global competition in the development of everything apps that make all sorts of financial transactions possible from one's phone. But when there isn't as much of an urgent need for new technology, stagnation can easily set in. Which brings us to the bigger challenge, the question of how we manage payments between nations, cross-border transactions that require even more steps and assurances of safety to pull off. Most of those steps aren't readily apparent to us because we're just on the street, simply going about our everyday lives with cash or card. But there's a much messier confidence game going on behind the numbers we hold in our hands or see in the bank. 
And that confidence game, that business of international transactions, plays a significant role in either limiting or opening up possibilities in individual human lives. Which is why today, we're building off our reflection in Episode 1 on the arbitrary values placed on individual lives to look at the arbitrary values placed on whole systems of human exchange. And it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and for six episodes, we're calculating what humans are worth to one another through a deep dive into global financing the messy investment structures that simultaneously promise to improve human agency and routinely repeat the same colonial problems from past eras in the process. One of the other huge challenges I faced financially after moving to Colombia was learning the extent to which the online world is not at all curated to serve people who have grown up in one banking context and are now living in another cultural context. Quite literally, even though I have a Canadian bank and Canadian cards, every interaction with a Western financial or online account system has been just a little bit different. It was hard enough to get my Canadian bank to list my Colombian address properly. And even then, the system is not set up for phone numbers abroad, meaning that I use a family phone number when I need to undergo two-step security processes with the service. All of that would be fine, though, if other sites then accepted the fact that, yes, I have indeed listed my financial address as it is written on my credit card account because for quite a few companies, there's an immediate fear of fraud the moment a user located in Colombia attempts to pay with a Canadian card. So much for the internet opening up the global economy, eh? But as much as these hitches have created personal impediments, they've also opened my eyes significantly to the underlying structures, the fragile seams on which my worldview was originally sewn together. If I'm able to connect at all with any of the aforementioned online services, it is only because I once lived in Canada. It's because I have an account in Canada. What about everyone else in my creative communities who by sheer fluke of birth could never have acquired a North American bank account in the first place? How could they ever hope to engage with the publishing systems and the financial systems that allow me to do my work even to the extent that I can? We do not live in a meritocracy, but to some extent this generation of human beings is able to pretend that it does because digital technology on its surface gives the illusion of creating a freer marketplace of exchange. All you need is an internet connection, right? But no, there are still many times when I can't even access a basic business page in Canada simply because of my location now. On a pragmatic level, for instance, I can't even buy an online gift card for pizza for a friend in Canada. The pizza vendor's websites won't allow me to visit the site from my location or the credit card information fails to go through because I'm not listing a Canadian billing address on the order form. Up until last year, many of my clients also wanted me to pay using SWIFT 
an international transfer system of great repute, which almost never worked on the first go for me because my payments kept getting flagged due to, wait for it, a discrepancy between the country of my primary bank and the address listed on that account. Predictable, right? And yes, I would love to use my local bank directly, but it doesn't always have a direct relationship with international providers, so delays through third parties called correspondent banks can happen too. All of which has led me to become more acutely aware of the fragile network that underpins international transactions as well as the core reasons for this fragility. The first and most heartbreaking aspect of that fragile network though has to be its size. Just as more than half of Colombia's workforce is in the informal economy, so too are huge portions of many developing countries' economies reliant on what's called remittances. A fancy way of saying citizens going overseas to work elsewhere and sending money home to offset local economic failings. These cash transfers made up 45.5% of the GDP in Tonga in 2021. In Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Samoa, Gambia, El Salvador, Honduras, Jamaica, Nepal and Lesotho, remittances ranged in descending order from 33 to 20% of total GDP. And that big business continues for a wide swath of other countries too. In Colombia, a land of many exports, 2.74% of GDP still came from citizens going abroad and sending money back in 2021. But even though these numbers amount to a huge client base, you can also probably guess from the locations that the size of each payment is still relatively small. And that's a big problem when it comes to onboarding major banks in the immense work that goes into setting up easy transfer pathways, especially from Western countries to remote parts of the developing world. Instead, for decades, people have predominantly gone to third-party wire transfer services and credit unions in person to send money overseas. Yes, there are some global money transfer systems embedded in major Western banks, but these systems don't have universal reach and they are certainly not presented as consumer products specifically for the kinds of people who would be engaged in, say, the sending of remittances home. And this makes perfect sense, too, when one considers that the world is filled with unbanked people in one country sending money to unbanked people in another. These are critical exchanges, the lifeblood of many human beings, but they're just not valuable to banks looking to make profit on, and perhaps more importantly to avoid undue risk with, their choice of transaction products. Because here's the other problem, even within a country, two banks need to have confidence in one another if a client in one is going to be able to send money safely to an account in the other. You might remember Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life trying to explain to frantic people wanting their money back from the building and loan that their money wasn't all literally in the vault. It had been invested in various building projects, the homes that those same clients lived in. You're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. I, the, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others. 
Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? The same is true even for a simple bank transaction on the national front. You give money to a bank which makes you a creditor to that bank. You've loaned your money to that institution, and it now owes you that money at some future point. When you ask your bank to send money from your account to the account of someone in another bank, what you're asking the bank to do is to take some of its debt to you and give that debt to another bank, which will then owe that money to your intended recipient. All well and good when it's just two banks in one country and hopefully under one shared set of rules and regulations along with parameters for oversight. Although even then, many financial institutions within one country will still rely on a central bank to back each local transaction, reducing risk for all parties involved. But when you have to cross a border to shift debt from one account to another, then a whole other world of hurt comes into play. Now you have to account for exchange rates, which will change the value of that debt. And can you trust that exchange rate? If so, through what other relationships with global financial systems? Plus, a new country can easily mean different rules and regulations, different levels of oversight for the banking institution itself. Do you trust those rules and regulations? Are they rigorous enough for your bank and your clients not to pay the price of a risky venture? Remember too that even if you're not actually investing in another bank, a financial institution that participates in the transfer of illicit funds, such as from a cartel or related money laundering schemes, is still at risk of paying a huge international fine. This happened to HSBC in 2012 when it was accused by the US Department of Justice of a, quote, stunning failure of oversight, end quote, that allowed it to become the preferred bank of Mexican and Colombian drug cartels looking to launder their ill-gotten lucre. It was required to pay a $1.9 billion fine to regulators for this infraction and, of course, underwent intense scrutiny and restructuring thereafter. This is why, in the 21st century especially, we've seen some rather uneven upheavals in the world of global finance. First, central banks, the kind helping even local banks communicate and trade with confidence, tend to make use of cross-border correspondent banks to help them connect to banks in other countries. But each of those correspondent banks has a different set of countries that it deals with based on its internal assessment of which international relationships are worth the risk and which are not. These correspondent banks are also taking a huge financial risk whenever they promise legal, safe transfers between their partners, which explains why the industry has shrunk, not grown, in recent years. In the last decade, these correspondent bank partnerships declined by about one-fifth as the businesses become much more conservative with respect to the risks they're willing to take on with member countries and their private banks. Meanwhile, smaller private firms have been answering the call of the remittance market, all those potential clients whose transfers have been too small to attract the notice of big banks, but who still absolutely need help getting their money home. For the unbanked among this demographic too, the world of crypto has been dangling a much-needed hope for change, a way to accumulate and trade wealth outside traditional banking infrastructure. If only crypto can be made reliable enough not to destroy average people's fortunes in the process. You can probably guess where this is going. 
Although quite a few recent services like WISE and Remitly are leaning into the promise of new technology to make international transfers much easier for everyday citizens, there remains the underlying issue of risk and regulation. Recently, the International Monetary Fund, along with other financial regulatory bodies in Europe and the US, have been advancing more robust legal frameworks for those third-party services to protect against exploitation of their clients and to defend against the development of new pathways for money laundering. Is this a perfect fix? Not even close. As I'll explore in episode 3, the IMF has a complicated history as an intervening force in global financial affairs. For now, I'll just note that the IMF is not entirely in favor of remittances to begin with, believing them to be an impediment to national growth, even as remittances remain a significant part of many countries' current GDPs. But there are other solutions in the works as IMF Financial Counselor Tobias Adrian recently noted in a January 2023 exploration of possibilities for a multi-currency exchange and contracting platform that could transform our current system for cross-border payments. Now, if that sounds like word salad, I'll make it a little simpler. What Adrian's research suggests is that while crypto in its current formation is not nearly reliable enough or secure enough for the kinds of financial transactions at volume that the world currently needs help with, there's still a kernel of a good idea in the whole framework. The idea of a personalized token that could possibly be remodeled to help more banks, third-party services, and individual clients engage directly with one another on the world stage. Is this an ambitious ask? Absolutely. And it's made even more so by the fact that these three major forces in the current cross-border market, the banks, the private service providers, and the everyday users, are all tethered to national economies that have their own competing needs and weaknesses in the eyes of the world's financial experts. But we'll get into that whole mess in episode four when we dive deeper into the grand ambitions and terrific worldly chaos that is the World Bank and the IMF. For now, good luck and watch your gold. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.